Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for our Savior's instruction about what the kingdom looks like, what leadership in the kingdom looks like, what we should be prepared to endure for the sake of our Savior Christ. And we pray that you would use even our time this morning in your word to prepare us for that, to meet whatever should come our way. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. We are in the middle of what is called a farewell discourse, okay? So you know the farewell discourse. You know this format. You've used it, I'm sure, many times. Anytime a kid, you know, is walking out the door and you, you know, list out that string of imperatives, be safe, you know, don't, don't talk to Johnny today. You know, you list out that kind of, those instructions. See, that's a farewell discourse and it takes place on a very small level because you know you're going to see them again. But particularly approaching death, these farewell discourses can get quite elaborate and they're very personal and they're designed, especially in Scripture, you get a couple of these in Scripture, here's one, you get other versions of this in the other synoptic Gospels, you get a very different kind of discourse uh, from Jesus in the book of John. You get one from Peter, Second Peter is a farewell discourse, D Peter approaching his deathbed. And in these biblical versions, leaders saying farewell to their disciples, the stakes are high. In fact, Jesus has a lot to accomplish here. In fact, he's realizing in the course of the Lord's Supper that he has a lot of material to cover in a very short amount of time because the disciples simply don't get it. They are obstinate in their way of thinking. But Jesus wants to prepare them. He wants to prepare them to be leaders. They are going to be leaders in this new kingdom that he is building. He's been preparing them all along. He's been telling them these things like, you know, right now it's okay not to fast. I'm with you, but there will come a day when you will have to fast, when you will have to be prepared because I will be leaving, and it will be on you, and you'll be waiting for me to return, right? So he's preparing them for something that will happen in the future, for some new reality in which he is absent, at least in body. And the church is going to look to them, his disciples, for leadership. Be prepared to lead this new kingdom that's the subject of this farewell discourse. That's the subject of these last words to his remaining disciples. And in this section, he is asking them a very simple question. You're going to be leaders. The church is going to look to you. Are you prepared? Are you prepared? Do you have what it takes? What it takes for what? Do you have what it takes to be nothing? to be absolutely nothing, to be despised, to be weak, to fail. It's no wonder the disciples don't get it. That's not what we think preparation looks like. We think preparation means getting stronger. We think it means being prepared to meet whatever catastrophe might come. But for Jesus, thinking about the nature of the kingdom, the character of the kingdom, the message that he has is the hardest message that we could possibly have to hear. It is this, 
For the sake of the kingdom, if you want to lead, you must be willing to be nothing. He gets at this through three angles. This passage roughly divides into three parts. Our first two paragraphs there are part one. Leaders must serve. Leaders must be servants. Our second passage, our second paragraph there, leaders will be tempted and will fail. And finally, our last paragraph, leaders will be opposed. They will meet opposition in the world and, unfortunately, in the church. We'll take these one at a time. First, perhaps the most difficult one for us to accept, leaders must serve. This dispute arises among the disciples. And it's almost comic, right? I mean, you're almost butting your head against the wall. What a shallow thing to talk about. I mean, it's proof, in the Bible, proof that you never actually get out of middle school, right? You, this, you always are having these conversations. You just get more sophisticated about it, but you're always basically wondering who's more important, who's higher up on the ladder. That's the basic orientation that we have in life. My story should be the story. This is why we think everyone's always talking about us. Do you ever, you ever feel, oh, I'm sure they're, you know, you walk into a room and there's laughter, there's gig. Oh, I'm sure they're talking about me. Because it would be completely illogical that they don't actually care about you, right? That, you know, they have to be, a, this, this is about me. The world is about me. And where do I fit in the world? It's so comic because it comes kind of out of nowhere, at least in our culture. But, uh, but maybe you've had these moments, Thanksgiving's coming up, and uh, perhaps at your family you have assigned seating. Right? You have little, little name cards where everybody's um, supposed to sit, and you have the uh, grown-up table, right, and then the kids' table. We stopped going to our, uh, our parents' Thanksgiving, uh, actually Christmas party, my parents' Christmas party, because we actually had Emma at this time, and they still put us at the kids' table. It's like, we're done with this. This isn't, uh, we're not doing this anymore. Uh, but there's place of honor, right? And sometimes to avoid kind of fighting over table, you, you assign the seats uh, where everyone is supposed to sit, make sure everyone gets equal time with grandma, kind of that kind of thing. Well, this is exactly what's going on in the ancient world. This is exactly what's going on at the Last Supper. They're trying to figure out where to sit. What's the best spot? Who gets to sit at Jesus' right hand, right? And in that culture, it's, there's much more significance attached. It's not just about spending time with grandma, as good as that is. It's about honor. Who's the most important? And this dispute arises, this argument arises, and for Jesus, it is clear testimony that the disciples don't get it. They're behaving exactly the way the world behaves. They're adopting their own culture's system of value and honor and what constitutes importance and what makes one important in order to establish rank among them. Now notice what Jesus does in answer to this dispute. He doesn't throw some sort of egalitarianism in the mix. You know what egalitarianism is? That we're all equal. Right? He doesn't perfectly democratize the situation. In fact, he assumes that there are rungs that there's status, that some will be at Jesus' right hand and some will be a little further down the line, right? He doesn't, he doesn't throw out 
the idea of honor. The idea of relative authority, the idea of respect. What he does is challenge the basis upon which the disciples assess their honor or relative status. He says, you're thinking about this the way the world thinks about it. What I want from you, what you need to see is that greatness in this kingdom isn't about greatness in this world. That's the basic fundamental principle with which we operate. Greatness is about greatness now. Okay? You want to be great in the future, you need to be great now. The greater you are now, the greater your future. The more important you are now, the more important you are in the future. You want to get rich, you need money. Right? That's why we send our kids to prestigious schools. Because if they go to Harvard now, they'll be doctors later. And if they're doctors later, maybe they'll be presidential advisors. If they're presidential advisors, maybe they'll be president. Your, your future depends upon your greatness at this present moment. Which is why you hit your quarter-life crisis or your half-life crisis and you freak out because you think, right, I'm not as great as I want to be and because I'm not as great as I want to be, I won't be as great as I want to be. Because I don't have the money I want now, I won't be ready for retirement. That's how we think about life. That's how we think about the world. Greatness in the future is determined by greatness now. And what Jesus says is exactly the opposite in the kingdom of God. It's exactly the opposite. The kingdom of God turns the world on its head. Greatness in the future is determined by how low can you go. If you want to be great, you need to be a servant. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you need to serve. Now we hear that, and part of our culture short circuits our ability to understand how radical it is that Jesus is claiming. We hear that and we think, oh yeah, that makes sense, okay? To be a leader means to serve. And we have categories for that. To be, you know, to be the, even the President of the United States is to be a public servant, right? We understand that. You're serving others. But notice that uh, actually Jesus is saying something much more radical. He, he recognizes that there is a kind of service in the world that we can talk about the authority in the world as a kind of service. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. A benefactor is a servant. You know, I use my money in order to serve somebody else. That's what a benefactor does. But in the world, a benefactor does that right, to gain authority. It's a way of increasing. It's a way of getting up the rung. It's a way of climbing the social ladders. This is especially true in the Roman world, but it's even true nowadays. A benefactor in the Roman world would grant, you know, a stipend, a certain amount of money, and you would expect something in return. If you were giving, you know, a million dollars to Pilate, you would expect Pilate in return to serve you. And in fact, in, uh, this goes on in Jewish history as well. If you're familiar with the Maccabean revolt, you'll know that the high priests in the, in the Maccabean period, what they would do in order to gain their priestly status is they would pay the Romans. They would buy it. This is what benefaction in the world looks like. And Jesus says, that's not the kind of service I'm talking about. I'm talking about something much more radical. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. 
The service that Jesus is talking about that we need to cultivate as Christian leaders, if you want to be leaders in the Christian community, is the service of a table waiter. What Jesus says is, you don't get, you don't get it. I mean serve not in that kind of good sense of I benefit you and then you benefit me. What I mean is that kind of quiet, silent service that is overlooked by the world. No one notices. You're, you, the best waiter is the waiter that no one notices, doesn't bother you, right? doesn't get in your way. The best servant is the one that doesn't bother you, that, doesn't, that isn't noticed. That's what, that's what I'm doing right now at the Lord's table. I'm giving you bread to eat and I'm giving you wine to drink. I'm doing it. I'm washing your feet. Jesus is talking about the kind of service that results in personal humility and even at times humiliation. To be nothing. To be overlooked. To be forgotten. That's the kind of service Jesus is requiring of his disciples. You want to lead? It's about making yourself nothing. It's about serving and not asking for anything in return. There are so many ways we trip over this. Because we serve in the church and we, we do all this work and it's all behind the scenes and because it's behind the scenes, you're not appreciated for it. So you stop. That's not what I signed up for. I'm happy to serve. All I'm asking for is a little appreciation, a little respect. Jesus says true Christian service is about doing the work and not getting the respect. In fact, as we'll find on down, sometimes you gain the opposite of respect. Opposition. You're called names. You're forsaken by even your closest friends and disciples. But that's what Christian service looks like. It's making ourselves nothing. And just to be clear, all of us are Christian leaders. Okay, there is somebody that you're shepherding right now. There is somebody that you're leading. It may be a little sister. It may be a big brother. It may be children. It may be people in the church. There is somebody that you are shepherding right now. And if your focus is, they need to respect me because I am their leader. I'm the decider because I'm older, because I'm the man of the house, or whatever it is. We're going to do it my way because I'm the leader. Then you fundamentally misunderstood what Christian service looks like. It's not about lording it over. It's not about asserting authority. It's, Christian service doesn't flow out of a place of strength and honor. That's what we think leadership looks like. Leadership comes out of strength and it comes out of respect. You want to lead, you need to be strong, and you need to be respected. Christian leadership is the opposite. It comes out of our weakness. It comes in spite of the fact that we're mistreated, not respected. It's sacrificial. It receives abuse. It persists in the midst of a lack of thanksgiving. It doesn't order about it doesn't command, but it bends the knee and washes the feet of those whose feet are filthy. That's what Christian service looks like. That's what we need to cultivate as fathers, as parents, as older brothers and sisters, 
as leaders in the workplace, how can I help you? That's my goal, and mean it. Leaders must serve. And in the midst of that service, leaders will inevitably be tempted. Notice uh, Jesus, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now there's a problem here. The problem is not the translation. It's a good translation. The problem is that y'all aren't Texans. Right? And the committee uh, that translated the ESV didn't have any Texans on the committee because if there was a Texan on the committee, that Texan would have said, y'all is a perfectly acceptable translation of the second person plural. You should say y'all if you mean y'all. So uh, the point here, Satan demanded to have you guys, you all. It starts out, with Peter, but Peter is actually a picture of what happens to all of the disciples. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have all of you, that he might sift all of you like wheat. The thing that happens to Simon happens to all of the disciples. It happens to anybody who seeks to honor Christ as their Lord. You will be sifted like wheat. The world, the flesh, even the devil will attack you and seek to tear you away from Jesus Christ. That's the nature of the attack. The nature of the attack is not just some discreet sin. The nature of the, ta- of the attack is not you know, uh, uh, a one-time thing, not a mere backsliding. Notice what Jesus prays for, for Simon Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. If you want to take on yourself the mantle of Christian leader, know this. You will be attacked, and the nature of the attack will be this. To cause your faith to fail. Not a stumble, but a fall. You will be tempted. This passage, this paragraph comes as kind of ironic. In a way, uh, you'll remember last week, Eric talked about this last week, Jesus was trying to identify who was his betrayer, right? And there's, the disciples are debating, oh, I think it's so by, I think it's, who's the betrayer? No one initially goes to Judas, but Jesus points out that Judas is the betrayer, so that question is then answered. And in this passage, they're trying to find out who's the greatest. So in the last passage, they were finding out who's the least, who's the traitor. Now they're finding out who's the greatest. And in this paragraph, Jesus answers that question. All of you are traitors. They all abandon Christ. Now, I'll leave that to next week. Because Eric is going to talk a lot about that as Jesus approaches the cross. But suffice it to say now that when Jesus is preparing his disciples for the future that they will need to endure, for the future leadership that they will have to exercise, what he tells them is that you will be tempted to abandon your faith and you will be faithless. You will fail. And that's not a good thing. Failure is not a virtue. We sometimes treat it as as if it is. We sometimes treat our sin as if it's something to be proud of. But it's not a virtue. Failure is a problem. 
And in the midst of Simon's failure, Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now that's not encouraging to Peter right now. Right now he's too worked up. He's about to respond argumentatively to Jesus. Now you don't understand, Jesus, I'm ready to die. Right? By the way, Peter is ready to die for Jesus. I don't doubt the integrity of his words. He's ready to die for Christ. What he's not ready to do is be nothing. What he's not ready to do is be mocked. What he's not ready to watch is his Savior defeated and oppressed and opposed. He's not ready for that. That's actually harder. Sacrifice is harder than death. Fathers, sacrifice, husband's sacrifice is harder than death. Oh, I'd, I'd, I'd pour out my life for my wife. But I, I don't have time to listen to her. Or I, don't, I don't have time to do it that way. I don't have time to turn the, the, the toilet paper the right way. I die for her, but I'm still going to take the, uh, the, the route that I'm going to take. I'm not going to follow her directions. Peter's ready to die, but he's not willing to be nothing for the sake of the honor of Christ. But, subsequent to this, he will remember, the Lord prayed for me, and when I've turned again, I'm supposed to strengthen my brothers. That's what Peter does. Peter gets through this. He gets through his failure, and he gets through failure, he's, he gets through that failure to resist temptation not because he was successful, but because he turned again to Christ. If you have failed the Lord, if you have failed the Lord and led others, repent. Return. Go back to Christ. It's not over yet. It doesn't mean... See, our God is not the God of second chances. He's the God of a million chances. What he does is he receives us and he restores us to faith. He restores us to fellowship. This is the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter weeps over his sin. And he seeks forgiveness from the only one who can grant it, Christ himself. Be prepared to be tempted, even to fail, and return to Jesus Christ. Final thing we need to spend a little time on, leaders will be opposed. Leaders will be opposed. It will not be, you get to the pinnacle of your leadership abilities, you get to the pinnacle of your status in the Christian kingdom, and it's not going to be coasting from there on in. It's not a sweet gig. It is full of vanity and opposition and difficulties. And Jesus is getting at that in this last paragraph. Now here, I'll, I've told you why you need to be a Texan in order to understand the, uh, the third paragraph. But here, if you have Texas heritage in your blood, you're going to misunderstand this. Uh, at least I heard you know, this language here uh, at the end. I tell you, um, bring your money back, bring your knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So Jesus says, be prepared, get everything you need, because a time is coming, time is coming when you will be persecuted. And you'll need that knapsack, you'll need that money bag, you'll need that sword. And Texans... Uh, look at this, and they see it as a great, a perfect biblical mandate for why you should carry firearms, right? Not only should, are you allowed to have a firearm, but you are commanded by Jesus 
to own uh, a firearm and to equip others with firearms. So that's not, ex that's not at all what's going on here, okay? It, this passage doesn't speak about the owning of weapons or militia or anything like that. It doesn't talk about it at all. It's just plain simply not what it's about. What it's about is the state of opposition that Jesus' uh, departure results in. Jesus leaves, which results in a new stage for the Christian church. When Jesus is there, the disciples are protected. When Jesus is there, the disciples receive honor because they're the disciples of the Messiah, of the honored one. When Jesus is crucified, what happens is the status of that community becomes the status of Christ. The time of fulfillment is as its hand. What is that fulfillment? That the Messiah will be numbered with the transgressors. And if you are numbered with Christ, then you are numbered with the transgressors as well. The rejection of Jesus Christ by the Jew first and also the Greek. Hear that. The rejection of Jesus Christ by the whole world means that the whole world rejects you for his name's sake. That's what bringing a sword means in Luke. You see that language of Jesus will bring a sword. You see it quite frequently. What it means is opposition, antagonism, warfare. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. We know that Jesus doesn't mean a literal sword here because in the next uh, passage, Peter wields a literal sword, cuts off the ear of the high priest, and what does Jesus do? He heals the high priest. No, Peter, don't do that. Do this instead. No, Peter, my kingdom is not about bringing a sword. It's about bringing healing. You've misunderstood yet again. I don't know, if it were me, I might say, sheathe the sword, but it's going an extra mile to actually heal the high priest. That's what Jesus does. That's the character of his kingdom. So we know he doesn't mean a literal sword. What he means is opposition, and it's bleak. Peter later understands this. Later he will come to appreciate it. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, he talks about the Christian community. Peter now, having learned his lesson, now he understands what the sword means. He understands what Jesus meant by taking my knapsack and my sword. He meant prepare for opposition. Beloved, I urge you, verse 11, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, keep your conduct among the Gentiles as honorable, so that, when you speak, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, a, a good passage, a famous passage, but notice how bleak it is. There's no transformationalist agenda. Be honorable among the Gentiles. Because if you do so, they will come to Christ and they will fill our churches no, it's, it's keep your conduct honorable so that when they charge you and bring you before the law courts, they have nothing to offer against you. This is the opposition that we should expect from the world, and we need to be prepared for it. Christian leaders should be prepared 
for opposition, not for being a jerk, okay? If you're being a jerk and you're opposed for that, then that's because you're a jerk. But if, if you're uh, naming the name of Christ, serving others, keeping your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, and opposed, then you know that the reason you're being opposed is because Christ was opposed. Prepare for that by realizing it's going to happen, not being surprised when the fiery trial comes against you, so that you're ready to stand firm. This is what they did to my Savior. Of course they're going to do it to me. This is how they opposed Christ. Of course they're going to oppose me. Servant isn't greater than his master. In fact, in all of this, Christian leaders need to serve. Christian leaders must be prepared for temptation. Christian leaders must be prepared for opposition. In each of those three areas, all we're doing is imitating Jesus Christ. You want to know what it's looked like to be a Christian leader? It looks like Christ. He came not to, to be served, but to serve. Even giving up his own life as a ransom for many. When he was before Pontius Pilate, he didn't assert his rights. He didn't mock Pilate. He didn't say, Pilate, who, who do you say I am? Who, do you, who are you? You're just some Roman governor. You're, you're a tool in the hands of the Roman system. I am the creator of heaven and earth. I am the Lord of glory. I am upholding the world by the word of my power. Who am I? Who are you? He doesn't do that. He submits to it. He never lies, but he submits to the mistreatment of those around him, the mistreatment of the world. Why? In order to save them for their good and for God's glory. That's the mind that should be in us. We should be prepared to suffer everything that Christ suffered and for the reasons that Christ suffered it for the good of our neighbor. Let's pray.